In this series, we're talking about living a beautiful life, and I'm going to tell you right now the secret of what's holding you back from a beautiful life. It's that you, and this is what holds me back too, you want to have a beautiful life. Everybody, I think, does, but you also want other things. And if you look at your life and it's not all that you dreamed it would be, it's not all that you want, I'm, I'm just going to tell you that the reason is because while you may have set some goals for yourself, you may have wanted certain things, uh, you also want other things. It's like this, I just thought of this example, I don't know why, it's not even a real example from like the last few weeks or anything, but it's like, you know, I want to take a homeless person out to lunch. But I also want to take my wife out to lunch, you know? And so one of the, both are beautiful and neither of those are bad. But, but sometimes, you know, you want one thing, you want another thing, and you have to make a decision. I, I want to spend time serving, you might say, uh, at church or some type of person in the community that has a need that I can serve. I have a skill set. But I also want to watch that show on Netflix, you know? And the, this is the choice between a beautiful life... Uh, and, and your life right now, you know? I mean, the, this is where you have to make the decision. Uh, we've de- defined in this series a beautiful life in a way that I think is not biblical. Uh, it's not unbiblical. It's just the, what I think we kind of qualify as a, as a beautiful life. And uh, we've said that a beautiful life is morally good. Whether you subscribe to the morality of Christianity or another morality, when you think of having a beautiful life, you want to live out the morality that you have set for yourself. Most of you are Christians, and, and therefore you want to live out the morality that the Bible has laid forth. And a beautiful life is in part living out the tenets of God, the, the rules, the regulations, the, the things that he has commanded us to do, living those things out in your life. Another one is that you want to be respected by other people. You want people to look at you, and whatever this means, uh, you want them to say, they live a good life. They live a different life. They are above average. They are not normal. Uh, You also want, because you probably want a beautiful life, a life that makes a difference in other people. You want to have at least a small group of people who look at you and go, without them, my life wouldn't be as full or as good or as uh, easy or whatever as it is because they are in my life. You want to have a life that impacts other people. And then out of that, we all want to have a life that outlives us. We want to have a life that when we die, we're buried in the ground. The things that we did still are making an impact. They are still making a difference. And so when you go, the things that you did don't go with you. And people that said, well, they mattered to me, don't say, well, they did matter to me, but you know, they're not around to help me move anymore. But they go, oh, that had an impact and it will last in me and it will last even in future generations. These are the things that we want and these are the things that we have been talking about over the last seven weeks. We've been identifying in the book of 1 Peter uh, the things that it says in that book of the Bible about how we can live a beautiful life. And I think that the hang-up, if there's been a hang-up, is that you want the beautiful life, but you also want to be lazy. You want the beautiful life, but you also want to be a little selfish sometimes. You want the beautiful life, but you want the things of the world. 
And I think that the choice can be summarized by this igloo, what's it called? Cooler, that's the word, this igloo cooler. And I think it can be illustrated with this igloo cooler because igloo coolers remind us of sporting events, right? Perhaps you think of when they dump it on the coach at the end of the game, but that's not why I'm talking. Because these igloo coolers at sporting events, almost all sporting events, are filled with water or Gatorade or probably watered down Gatorade in most cases. And they are there because people are choosing to work to give of their bodies in order to achieve a goal that is great. And in it, they work hard, they give of themselves, and then they replenish. And when I look at this igloo cooler, I'm reminded of of sacrifices that are sometimes made in the world of sports, but I think we can use it as an illustration for everything else. But sacrifices that are made, (coughs) excuse me, in order to accomplish something great. I could tell you stories from my own life. I would like to tell you stories from my own athletic career, my, my whole sermon, in fact. But uh, just a couple that, that came to mind for this sermon. I mean, I threw a two-hitter at 12 years old with 103-degree temperature. There's already an argument in my marriage about whether or not Hazel will be allowed to play sports with the temperature. Uh, you can guess, if you know me, who's on what side of that argument. Uh, but for me, even as a 12-year-old... I. I wanted to win, I wanted to be a champion, I wanted to accomplish things, and so sickness was something that, and it's not fun, there's nothing fun about trying to throw a ball 100 times when you have 103 degree temperature, that's not fun, but you just choose to do it anyway. My, my high school basketball coach, in fact, had this thing that I don't think is true at all, but when you were sick, and I mean really like sick, you weren't supposed to be able to miss class and then play your sport, but that wasn't a rule if you were any good at all uh, that was obeyed. But he would be like this. He'd be like, I have 102 degree temperature. And he would say, oh, come to practice and sweat it out of you. Like, <laughs> all right, Coach Gar, sounds like a fun day to me. And I did, and we did, because we wanted to accomplish something else. Another time, uh, I, I remember getting hit in the face. It's a compliment from my dad that I remember like it was yesterday. I got hit in the face with a ball. I'm, I think, like eight, nine years old when this happened. Hit in the face by a ball that I, I'm guessing took a bad hop because I don't want to take credit for just letting a ball hit me in the face. Hit me in the face. Face starts bleeding. I pick up the ball, try to throw the guy out at first base. And I remember my dad saying, don't judge him. Uh, That's what you need to do. Make sure you finish the play before you you fall to the ground and be hurt. This is, I I was a nine-year-old kid. I remember another time when I I ripped open a scab and I started to come off the field because this is before the Magic Johnson stuff, um, but I'm gushing blood down my arm like this. And I think I was 11 when this happened. Gushing blood down my arm. Uh, And I start to come off the field and my dad says, whoa, whoa, whoa. Like if you come off the field, you have to stay off the field for two innings. So I play an inning of baseball as an 11 year old with just blood flowing down my arm. And I sound tough, and I'm, I'm not, it, it, like, if we, if we wrestle together, I see my brother-in-law over here, he likes to wrestle. He says wrestle, and I just kind of let him pin me and say, are we done yet, you know, because I don't care about that. But when 
I was growing up, I care. If it has a ball, I care a lot. And so the pain and the difficulty doesn't matter because I want to win more than I want to be comfortable. And this is a representation of that to me because it is the very thing that replenishes us when we give of ourselves to accomplish something greater. And what I think we see in our passage today is that we have this choice to make. We can, we can live for our physical feelings to make them feel good, to feel good in our senses, to be happy, if you will, or we can set our minds to accomplish something that is greater, something that is more important. And this is the decision that you have to make. Uh, It's the decision that determines, honestly, whether or not you will live a beautiful life or an average, normal life. We'll pick up 1 Peter 4, 1 through 2, and we're gonna see this decision just almost right away. He says, therefore, since Christ suffered in his body, (coughs) arm yourselves also with the same attitude, because whoever suffers in the body is done with sin. As a result, they do not live the rest of their earthly lives for evil human desires, but rather for the will of God. So this points back to what we read last week. And last week we saw a passage of scripture where it describes how Jesus suffered horribly for us. In 1 Peter 3.18 it said, for Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous to bring you to God. He was put to death in the body. We saw that Jesus, despite all the suffering and suffering that he did not deserve, chose to do that which was right and that which was good for us and we ought to follow him in that. And Peter then flips and says, look, use Jesus as an example. And one of the ways that he was an example to us is that even though he suffered, he did not sin. And he looks at us and says, even if it costs you physical comfort, even if it causes you physical discomfort, pain, continue to not sin and follow the example of Jesus. Now, we saw in this series already, but if you weren't around, you don't know this, that that one of the things that, that leads to a beautiful life is simply removing certain evil behaviors from your life, like gossip and slander and anger and yelling at people and disunity with other people. We saw that. But we know, this is what we know. Like, yeah, I want to remove those things so that my life is more beautiful. But there's a part of my flesh, and this isn't even suffering, but there's a part of my flesh that just wants to yell at them. And, and so I have a decision to make. Now think of it this way. If somebody was, was saying, look, you have two choices to make. You can sin or I will beat you up then you have a a difficult decision to make. You either strive for your comfort or you strive to be obedient to the things that God has called you to do. There's this story in Jewish lore and it will uh, open up the movie that I will never write but would love to write about the Jewish people and, uh, and their fights with the Romans that happened between the Old and New Testament. But there's this, this story that I love and it's about a Jewish man who is in prison because he's refusing to serve and worship really the Roman emperor and to give in to the customs of uh, the Roman people and 
And so the Romans come and they give him a piece of uh, pork to eat and Jewish people don't eat pork. And they say, if you eat this by tomorrow, uh, then we won't kill you. In the night, two younger kids come and they uh, are able to find a hole in the jail cell or however that works. And, and they say, just give us the pork and you won't have to die and you won't have to eat it. And, and this guy in Jewish lore looks at these kids and says, yes, but what will the children think? You see, not only was he willing to die to not sin, he also was willing to die to not give off the appearance of sin. And this is the choice that we make to a smaller degree every day. We choose not to sin or we choose to make our flesh more enjoyed. Uh, We choose to uh, make our flesh feel better. Admit it, admit it with me. Sometimes when somebody has made you really, really angry, it would feel better to punch them in the face. Wouldn't it? I mean, we don't like to say that in church, but sometimes, at least for a second, (laughs) it would make you feel better. It would at least make you feel better to yell at them. It would at least, at least, make you feel better to say something about them to somebody else, right? I mean, that's not a far stretch. It would just feel so good to say, did you hear what Larry did? Did you hear about it? And so you have a choice. Do you satisfy your flesh or do you not give in to the sin, do you live out your morality? Now, he sums it up at the end of this set, these two verses, and he says that these people, hopefully you, who have learned to suffer instead of sinning have made a break from sin. It says they are done with sin. Isn't that cool? I mean, if you are willing to suffer physically in order to not sin, then the Bible says that you have, making, uh, you have made a break from sin. That doesn't mean you will never sin again. It means that sin no longer controls or rules your life. That's a pretty cool place to get to, and it's a place that I don't think most people who at least profess to be Christians in our country today will ever get to, because they will always choose to satisfy <clears throat> their flesh over not giving in to sin. But he says, if if you will suffer for your sin, if you will give of your body and not sin, excuse me, and not sin, then you have made a break from sin and you will live the rest of your earthly lives not for evil human desires, not for lusts of the flesh, another way to say it, but rather for the will of God. And that is the choice that I described earlier. Will you live for the lusts of the flesh or for the will of God. Now, oftentimes when the lust of the flesh is said in the Bible, it's, it's and flesh, just the word flesh, it has kind of evil theological connotations. But here in the book of 1 Peter, I don't believe that it does. Uh, he's just described the flesh of Jesus using the same word, and that's one of the best pieces of evidence that he's just saying, like the body. And so Peter sets us up with this choice You can satisfy your own personal desires, longings, uh, hope for certain feelings. You can give in to your pleasures. You can give in to your laziness. You can sit around doing nothing. You can make yourself feel good or, or you can do the will of God. Or. 
Now, some in churches all across our country today are saying, if, instead of or, if you do the will of God, then you will be more satisfied. But Peter, who wrote this, he didn't think that. I mean, Peter, while talking to Jesus before he before Jesus rose again and went back up into heaven, has a conversation where, where Jesus is like, hey, you're free right now, but eventually you're gonna be arrested for this following me thing. And then history tells us that Peter died upside down on a cross because he didn't feel worthy to die the same way as Jesus. So when they were about to crucify him, he said, just spin me upside down the other way. I think that's the will of God for my life. That's a choice. Not a do this and you'll be happy. That's like a I choose will of God over my personal satisfaction and happiness. The last I checked uh, and heard being crucified wasn't very fun and it sounds like being crucified upside down is even worse. And when, when we get to the point where we choose the will of God over satisfying self, then our lives are beautiful because a life devoted to doing God's will is a beautiful life. Now, you may not think that because there is baggage that now comes with the word Christian. We, we know this, right? I mean, uh, Christians, this last couple of weeks, it's been uh, even more prevalent to talk about how we hate gay people because, you know, one guy in Sacramento is running his mouth and talking about how these people who died in Orlando, it's a good thing and all that. And so now we who are Christians are having to like define defend ourselves, you know, Uh, but there is a lot of baggage like that that comes along with being a Christian, but the reality is, the reality is, a life devoted to the will of God is about the most beautiful life that you can live. I, I just thought of things this week, like William Wilberforce, you may have heard of him. He uh, is pretty much responsible for the fact that slavery ended in England, and as a product of that almost, slavery kind of started to to move towards being erased in America. And what you need to know about William Wilberforce is he didn't just go, well, I think slavery should end because of my political beliefs or uh, because I like people who are slaves or whatever. He did it because he decided that, that God's will would be the most important thing in his life. And so he devoted himself to doing that which he believed God wanted him to do. During these centuries, this is a quote, during these centuries of the Christian faith permeated all aspects of life in the West. The very conception of medicine as well as its practices was deeply touched by the doctrine and discipline of the church. This is talking about why and when hospitals started. This theological and ecclesiastical influence manifestly shaped the ethics of medicine, but if but it even indirectly affected its science since as its missionaries evangelized the people of Western and Northern Europe, the church found itself in a constant battle against the use of magic and superstition in the work of healing. It championed rational medicine along with prayer to counter superstition. Hospitals exist in the way that you know them because many men and women have decided to do the will of God at the cost of themselves. Just sometime think about the names of hospitals and you'll notice a trend, a pretty easy trend to spot. They're all named after Christian-like things. 
And it's because men and women who have started these hospitals have chosen to do so because they thought it was the will of God for their lives. And they looked at Jesus, who is the great physician, and said, I want to be like Jesus. Let's heal people's bodies. I thought of this. If the greatest disaster relief programs on earth, the two greatest at least, at least the Red Cross and our own denominations, the Southern Baptist Disaster Relief Program, they exist because Christians said, I wanna do the will of God. When a tornado hits somewhere and the Red Cross shows up, there's a reason there's a cross in that title. It's because Christians say we need to help when there's been disaster. And people, Christians, more than anybody, give of themselves. They leave jobs and family and they go to places that people don't wanna go because they've been hurt or they're suffering and they do something about it because they have a life devoted to the will of God. And we can see that the results are beautiful. My great-grandfather used to pastor a church up on Dixie Mountain, which is like a little mountainy thing in Portland. Maybe some of you know it. I wouldn't if it wasn't for this, but uh, kind of the outskirts of the Portland area. (laughs) And in his mind, it was kind of a a failed effort. He also planted the church Village Baptist, which is giant now in the Hillsborough area. Uh, But Dixie Mountain was kind of a failure in some ways in his mind. But while he was there, he led one guy to Jesus, uh, not just one guy, but he led one guy to Jesus that went to California and became completely devoted to God, was in large part responsible for the EMT program being implemented in the California state, in the state of California, and then left California and went in and planted a hospital in some country that I cannot remember now that would never have had a hospital. That's a beautiful life. And it's a life, in fact, that makes my great-grandfather's life more beautiful. He just led this guy to Jesus, and the guy said, I will choose the will of God over you know, being a doctor that makes a great amount of money in the United States. Not that that's bad, but that's the choice he made because he thought it was the will of God. Anybody that tells you that living a good Christian life is a life that is ugly has not studied history nor the Bible. Because a life devoted to the will of God instead of basically satisfying yourself is a life that is more beautiful than every other life that you know of. Peter continues. This is is an interesting, it's a cool verse. For you have spent enough time in the past doing what pagans do, living in debauchery and lust and drunkenness and orgies and caressing and detestable idolatry. He says, look, Before you were a Christian, and even if that was when you were four years old, I think Peter would say, the time has been enough. There's been enough of this stuff in your life because this stuff isn't any good at all. Uh, The idea behind all of these sins is living for the pleasures of the flesh. And and really, you could sum it up in my generation. Maybe this isn't uh, for all generations, but in my generation, we would have described everything he said here as partying. That's how we kind of said it. Like, are they a partier or are they not a partier? And uh, here he says things like drunkenness, you know, that's wild parties and drinking parties and, uh, you know, idolatry, which at the time was actually connected to drinking parties 
These are some wild, crazy parties. But they would run around with their idols after they got smashed and they'd celebrate their idols. And, and so the, every sin he says here is about being a part of these wild parties. Now, I just want side note kind of to all the rest of the sermon. And uh, that is that, that these verses, or this, this verse here, uh, does list some sins that we should not be a part of. We should not get drunk, for example. And, and I also personally have taken this to mean <coughs> that I shouldn't be at parties, at places where the point of those places or those parties are drunkenness. And so there's this distinction in my life, an application that you don't need to take this application, but it's an application that I have made to my own personal life. I will go to a sports bar, but I will not go to a bar where it seems that the only intention of the bar is for people to get drunk. Uh, and that is how I have split up this verse morally in my own life. Uh, I, w- Cravens used to be in town. I uh, would go to Cravens without any difficulty in my conscience or uh, any moral um, separation from what I believe. Uh, but I will not go to certain bars because uh, they don't exist to watch sports. They exo- exist for people to take shots. And, and so for me, a beautiful life is, is avoiding these wild parties. It's not avoiding all places where there's alcohol, but where these wild parties are. And uh, there are certain places that have great nachos and that I'd like to go and I don't. And, and so, you know, there's me sacrificing of self. But Peter continues, they are surprised <laughs> that you do not join them in their reckless wild living and they heap abuse on you. But they will have to give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead for this is the reason the gospel was preached even to those who are now dead so that they might be judged according to human standards in regards to the body but live according to God in regard to the spirit. It's interesting, he says these people that look at you and and they go, wow, you won't party with us anymore. Used to be the life of the party. Used to have the lampshade on your head, and now you won't show up and hang out with us. What's happening? He says these people will eventually turn on you. They will heap abuse on you. I told this uh, uh, last week or the week before that that when I became serious about Jesus in high school, there were people who said to me outright, "We miss the old Chad." we want the old Chad back. Where did the old Chad go? Now they weren't jerks because they're not jerky people, but if they would have been jerky people, then they would have probably said those things in meaner ways. And the reality is when people are confronted by a more beautiful life than their own, they naturally have a desire to reject it and to abuse it. You kind of know this, right? This is why peer pressure exists. This is why you get mocked for living differently because people need to feel like they're doing things that are okay and when you're not giving in because of your moral stances, then it makes them angry. And Peter says, this abuse will come. He says, this is the reason the gospel has been preached, even to people who've already died. So that, check this out, they might be judged according to human standards in regard to the body, but live according to God in regard to the spirit. This is so fascinating because the truth is all of us will be judged according to our bodies in some way. 
We'll be judged according to the clothes that we wear. We'll be judged according to how good looking we are. We'll be judged according to how talented we are. We'll be judged according to how in shape we are. We'll be judged according to how well we sing or don't sing. We'll be judged according to how smart we are or not smart we are. This is a reality of life. You will be judged according to your bodies and the things that come out of your bodies. But the awesome part for Christians is that we have another way. While we'll be judged according to our bodies, we also can live according to God and be judged according to the Spirit. You see, you're going to get made fun of at some point in life. You've already been made fun of at some point in life. There's going to be somebody who doesn't like you, perhaps because of the way you look, perhaps, perhaps because you're not into the same things as them, perhaps because, uh, I don't know, you, the way you talk makes them mad or something. I mean, you're going to have people that are mad at you about that. But Jesus came and died and rose again so that we might enter into a relationship with him and then all of a sudden, we're no longer judged just according to all this stuff. We're judged according to a spiritual standard. And the spiritual standard always is a beautiful life. You don't want to live a beautiful life because, let's be honest, because people will judge you according to your body. And if you don't have the nice clothes, and if you're not up to speed on the newest shows, and if you uh, aren't as good looking as the guy next to you, then people will look down upon you. But Peter says, hey, there's a new reality for those of you who are Christians. You're now judged according to the spirit, so you don't have to worry about the judgment according to the body, according to things people can see, according to the flesh. You now only need to worry about the ultimate judge, that is God. And you need to be willing to choose a beautiful life over satisfying yourself. And he says this, to the end, of all, the end of all things is near. Therefore, be alert and sober in mind so that you may pray. He's like, here's a reminder. The end of the physical stuff is soon. Now, this was written a couple thousand years ago, and so uh, it doesn't mean soon necessarily in like tomorrow. It means soon in the idea that Jesus' return is imminent, to use the word that theologians use. It, it means that, we should live as though Jesus is coming back now, like in one second, and we should live our entire lives that way. And the reality is when we are making a decision about whether we will live for ourselves and to satisfy our own wants and desires or we are living for the will of God, then to remember that Jesus is coming back soon is very important. And he says, remember that and remember in a way that makes you Alert and sober-minded. These words, pretty straightforward words. It means you should be paying attention. It means that you shouldn't be driven by your emotions going up and down. And those two things should take place in your life for the purpose of prayer, which is important if you're going to live a beautiful life. You see, for Christians... It's easy, it's easy, and you, if you've ever prayed, then you know this. It's easy for all of our prayers to be driven by our focus on these physical things. Like, God, just, just make me better looking. Or, God, I wish that I could sing like that guy. Or, God, I wish I was as athletic as them. Or, God, they made fun of me. And we're like this, and it's, our prayers are all 
based on what's coming towards our bodies because we're being judged in the flesh. And Peter says, wait a minute, Jesus is returning soon. So you should be alert and sober, paying attention to the spiritual judge instead of the human judges that are all around you. And that should dictate your prayers. Do you wanna know what side you've chosen? How you can tell what side you've chosen? Satisfying self or, or, or doing the will of God and living a beautiful life? Record yourself praying out loud sometime. If everything you pray is about this body, the things that this body needs and wants, then you have chosen to satisfy self over the will of God. And you need to remember that the end is near and you need to be alert and sober. Just think about your prayers. Just think about it right now. Is it all about the body? It's not supposed to be. It's supposed to be all about the will of God taking place on this planet. And then in verses eight and nine, he says this incredible thing that I think is in fact a summary of God's will, but it's not easy. And he demonstrates that in the language. He says in verses eight and nine, above all, love each other deeply because love covers over a multitude of sins. This phrase, love each other deeply, is much more than just love each other. Uh, It is more literally to keep fervent in your love. At the heart of the will of God is always the greatest command to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and the second greatest command, which is to love each other as ourselves. And Peter here gives us a one-liner that can help us determine if we're living for the will of God or self, that, that shows us what we ought to be doing if we are living for the will of God and we want to live a beautiful life more than we want to be comfortable. And he says, love each other deeply, which means something closer to keep fervent in your love. This word fervent, as most of the New Testament, comes from a Greek word. And the Greek word means to extend oneself or uh, to strain yourself or to be earnest or to stretch out. The word was used in Greek speaking circles for the kick of a horse at the end of the race. I don't know if you guys like horse racing. I do. Uh, And I've told this story in another sermon somewhere in my life. Um, But I was really, the most I was ever into horse racing was the year that a horse named Smarty Jones won the first two races of the Triple Crown, which is horse racing's three most important races. And nobody had won the Triple Crown since 1977. Somebody won it, uh, somebody, a horse won it last year. Uh, But uh, Smarty Jones, I I got a t-shirt because I knew somebody in Philadelphia where Smarty was from. He was kind of an underdog horse, an underdog horse. Uh, That's a new phrase. He was an under horse horse. You know, he was a a horse that didn't come from a a rich, wealthy background. He didn't have kind of the same lineage. And so I was on board, and I, I, it was during the year that I spent two months in Idaho uh, uh, being, doing summer missionary work, and the last leg of the Triple Crown uh, was on TV, and I scheduled my whole day to watch Smarty try to win the race, and, and 
he's winning the entire race, the entire race. And at the very end, this horse just comes flying by him and beats him by like a head. And I'm like, it's one of my two saddest sports memories. Both are alone. The, the Blazers blowing the 13-point lead and, and, and 2001, and then the Smarty Jones moment. I, I mean, I just was like, what happened? And what happened is that when they kicked, the other horse had a better final push. And the Greek people used this word, this word fervent for that moment when the two horses at the end were trying to beat each other and there was no more pacing, there was just sprinting. And Peter says, hey, you choose will of God or satisfying self and let me tell you at the heart of the will of God what you'll find and that is loving each other fervently, going all out in your love for each other. We all like the idea of loving, don't we? Isn't it nice? Yeah, I love people. Christians are famous for saying, we love everybody. But do you love people fervently? Do you love to the point that you are giving of yourself, if I can return to the metaphor, do you love so passionately that it makes you feel empty? Like you need to get a drink of water when you're done serving and caring and being there for people and listening to people and helping people and fighting the injustices in the world? Or do you just love like you're sitting in a recliner? Yeah, I love them, but I choose satisfying self over the strain of the will of God. He gives us examples. It's not things that I'm gonna touch on too long, but he says to offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. Already, right? You're like, I want to do the will of God over satisfying self. I want to love people passionately, deeply, fervently. I just don't ever want them to come to my house. You know, I mean, because I have things going on and then I'll have to clean. And I really, I mean, I love you as long as we only see each other at church. You know, I love you as long as we're just friends on Facebook but don't knock on my door. And he says, look, offer hospitality to one another. And this is, I'm pretty good at offering hospitality uh, because my wife, it's, it's like a gift for her, but I'm not good at that last part of that first sentence without grumbling. I, I Secret, just about every time you've come over, I've probably grumbled before you got there. Uh, just like, why do we have to vacuum? Can't they come another day, you know? Uh, and so I don't obey that command. I'm very hospitable, but... Um, and then this, use your gifts to serve one another as faithful stewards of God's grace in its various forms. Every Christian has been uniquely equipped to serve and we ought to be serving because we fervently love one another. But then he says this other thing that's even more difficult. If anyone speaks, they should do so as one who speaks the very word of God. If anyone serves, they should do so with the strength God provides. He says, don't just serve using your gift, do it passionately. We have great servers at this church how many of you do it passionately? If that doesn't convict you at all, then you're doing great. 
But if it does, then serve more passionately so that in all things God may be praised through Jesus Christ. To him be the glory and the power forever and ever. Amen. Just a couple of examples of people who have done beautiful things, who are doing beautiful things. And I could list so many of you, but I'm just gonna list a couple who wouldn't want me to list them. But Sarah Lynn and Kathy, they started writing birthday cards to people. And just, this is not something that they need to do or that satisfies themselves, but they just made a decision, like people need birthday cards. And they just decided to write birthday cards. And that's important to people in our church. Some people have been angry because they don't get a birthday card. <laughs> no offense to Sarah Lynn and Kathy, but, but there's been people who are missing on our birthday registry. Do you call it that one's birthday? And they haven't got one. It's like, where's my card? And it was just a decision they made. I, I had the privilege of doing the, the wedding for Taylor Hilly last night and, uh, and her parents, they just do things at this church and they do them well and they do them consistently and constantly. And, and some of you don't even know they exist in our church uh, because they don't talk much, but they, you don't even know. And yet they, they just do things and they do them well and they do them passionately. And our church would not be the same as it would be if, if they weren't here. And it's because they've chosen to give of themselves for the will of God instead of to satisfy themselves. And I could list a whole bunch of you. Uh, and if I, you know, don't leave and go, well, how come you didn't list me? I could list a whole bunch of you, but those people they don't like to be seen. Uh, and so it seemed like a good one. Um, and so what I'm saying is this. You have an easy, easy choice to make, really. You can live for a purpose that is beautiful. That is doing the will of God. Or you can live to satisfy yourself. And I say the decision is easy, not because living out the decision is easy, but I say it's easy because we know that when we live to satisfy ourselves, it doesn't produce the beautiful life that we want. We will never be morally as excellent as we want. We will never be looked at as different and above average. We will never do things that make a difference in people's lives and we will never have a life that outlives us. So we all should choose to do the will of God loving fervently and putting our gifts to use in a passionate way. The decision's easy. The only question is whether you're tough enough to live out the decision when it becomes difficult. When you get hit in the face by the metaphorical baseball of life, are you gonna quit? Or are you gonna keep trying to do the will of God? When you have a decision to make this week because somebody calls you and they're like, hey, I need somebody to talk to. You go, well, the easy decision is to do the will of God, but it's also the harder thing to do. So am I going to stay on the phone with them? Am I going to have coffee with them? Or, or am I gonna do my regular normal routine because it's easier for me? If you want to live a beautiful life, then you must be willing to sacrifice of yourself for the will of God, to love people fervently. If you don't, you'll never have the life you want, but if you do, you will have a life of incredible impact. And so I hope that you won't only make the decision to live for the will of God, because that's easy, but you'll be tough enough to live out that decision every single day of your life. Will you pray with me, Lord?
I mean, man, God, I, I think that every week we, uh, you come to church, we come to church, and, and we're ready, God, when we leave church to do something different, but then regular life comes, and, and we have this desire to be satisfied, to, to feel good, to have nice things, all the things I said earlier, Lord, and, and then we just give up, we quit, because for many, God, here, and many who will listen online to this sermon, Lord, the reality is they aren't passionate enough passionate enough about your will. And so therefore, when it's difficult to do your will, they quit and they do what's easy and what's nice and what's pleasurable, Lord, and they give up on a beautiful life. I I pray, Lord, that you would change that. And I pray, God, that every person who's in front of me and again who will listen online would not only make a decision to live out your will, to, uh, to love fervently, God, but they would be passionate enough and courageous enough and tough enough to put that decision into practice. Jesus, I thank you that you were passionate enough about your purpose, passionate enough to do your Father's will that you were willing to die for us. And I pray these things in your name, amen.